You know, I want to take a minute to thank our wonderful sponsors. Without our sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of United Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School, this podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check out what they have to offer. If you really want to take the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and this week's presenting sponsor. For the next few episodes, you'll hear interviews with the New York Times bestselling author Rachel Held Evans, author Bree McCoy, and contributing author at The Guardian, Daniel Jose Camacho. This week's presenting sponsorship is brought to you by the 2018 Summer Conference of the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America, Baptista por la Paz. The annual conference of BPFNA, Baptista por la Paz, is for everyone who longs for the spirituality, inspiration, skills, knowledge, and community to support a life of peace rooted in justice. Join BPFNA this year from July 2nd through the 7th on the campus of Cuca College in Cuca Park, New York, for a powerful week focused on decentering power and privilege as we seek to become the peculiar people of God. The conference will feature an impressive lineup of speakers, music, workshops, and more to empower your work for social justice. Come for a day, a couple days, or a full week. Child care will be provided, and children and youth will have their own age-appropriate peacemaking programs. If you're interested in creating a change, both within yourself and in the world around you, save these dates and join the welcoming community of peacemakers for a life-changing experience. Visit bpfna.org backslash gather for more information and to register. Call 704-521-6051 or email bpfna at bpfna with any questions. Our guest for this week's podcast is O. Wesley Allen Jr. Wes is the author of Preaching in the Era of Trump. He's also the professor of homiletics at Southern Methodist University's Perkins School of Theology. He earned a PhD at Emory, at MDiv at Yale Divinity School, and a BA at Birmingham Southern College. Um, now, Wes, you don't know this, but we have a deeper connection than you originally uh, thought. Uh, while you were receiving and earning your BA in Birmingham, I was born just six miles down the road at Baptist Medical Center of Montclair. Did, did you bring this up just to make me feel especially old right as we start the interview? Um, I just, you know, fate would have it that all these years later, you were earning. We would reconnect. We would reconnect. You know, you never know if you drove past the hospital one on that glorious day in April the 12th, and we will leave the year out. Uh, <laughs> no, that's great. I didn't know you were born in Alabama. Yeah, that's, that's where my story started as well. Well, that is maybe a good place. Tell us a little bit more about your story. Well, I grew up in a small town in Alabama, Sylacauga, Alabama, Cherokee name, and um, grew up in First United Methodist Church there and went off to Birmingham Southern, as you mentioned, uh, planning on entering the ministry. 
And um, there I fell in love with the academic side of, of religion as well and went off to Yale, not sure if I wanted to serve in the parish setting or in the um, university kind of setting. Um, ended up at Emory doing my PhD in New Testament with a minor in homiletics. And um, after, you know, I'd served churches throughout my schooling. And then after that, I went into campus ministry for a while and ended up um, deciding to go into the route of teaching preaching um, with a, a, a still a continued emphasis in Bible, um, that sort of move from Bible to pulpit. But um, I've tried to uh, focus on a, a wide range of things in preaching. And I guess my m main area of specialization has been preaching in postmodernism, sort of as the church and um, loses authority in culture. How does one preach um, to a congregation that gathers, um, maybe reluctantly, but at the very least, to see whatever a preacher offers as one source of possible meaning making among many others they hear on TV and radio and podcasts and internet all day, all week long? So, how do you compete in that marketplace? Mm. So uh, where did you begin to cut your teeth on, on preaching? I, uh, it's a funny story, back at Birmingham Southern, again, so um, we're, we're talking, um, so I'm going to date us both, um, the um, mid-80s, um, we had at Birmingham Southern a program where during jam term, you could do a directed study, and I did a directed study with a professor on a theology of preaching, and um, one of the first people I read was Fred Craddock, and um, ended up then working with Fred Craddock at um, Emory when I went to get my PhD, along with others, but he was my primary homiletics professor at that point, and uh, had a big influence on me. So from the beginning, I just loved preaching, and more and more fell in love with studying preaching, which is what homiletics really is. And so it's been a it's been a very good journey for me, and it's great to be here at Perkins now, um, and focusing on this and um, uh, teaching a wide range of students and, and getting to write in a, a a range of homiletical topics. One of my favorite Fred Craddock quotes is, "Learning to preach is difficult because preaching is difficult." I, I, I don't remember him saying that, but I, I must have I must channel that because I often tell my students uh, they'll they'll start complaining about something you know being so hard and they're they're beating themselves up and I'll say you know why this is so hard don't you and they for you and I say why I say, because it's hard <laughs> you know if it's if it's important enough it ought to be difficult to do yeah you know um, I've been in vocational ministry for a little over eighteen years now and. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had parishioners ask over the years. So besides writing sermons, what else do ministers do during the week? And it's like, yeah. you know, I just imagine, you know, uh, people just see us just, you know, hammering away at a typewriter or a pad of paper or MacBook, you know, trying to pull together the, the right words. And that's, that's all that we do. Um, but there's so much more into that. And, and you obviously are an expert in this area. You've authored 15 books on homiletics and preaching. Um, so why do we preach? Well, that's actually a question that's really a hot topic right now. In fact, whether we should continue preaching in a sense. Um, and this question comes up every so often especially in the modern history of the church. So we're talking about Fred Craddock in 1970. He wrote As One Without Authority. And that was, you know, following a time in the late 60s where emphasis in um, theological schools was all on social activism and such. And the question became, well, does preaching really have a place in the church anymore? Shouldn't we just be doing other things? And in a lot of settings, uh, like a preaching course was an elective. There was no required preaching course to go off and serve in the church. Today, it's asked sometimes in relation to all the other forms of media we have. 
um, should we, do we need to continue preaching this, this sort of old-fashioned oral medium when we could be producing movies or um, other kinds of things that offer religious experience and religious knowledge? And, and, and I think um, while preaching may continue to evolve, who knows, I, I think there's a special place for this moment when the, the whole community gathers around the word and a preacher offers a, perhaps a tentative interpretation of scripture for people to consider and how it might shape their lives and how it might shape their view of the world and build their relationship with God and with one another. So for me, preaching is the place where um, those of us who do all those other things that, you know, prisoners don't think about until they need them happen necessarily. We bring all those together in one moment. It, I, I tell my students all the time um, that preaching is the most important task in ministry, and that's not meant to diminish other tasks at all. It's that this is the moment when it all comes together. So when you go do pastoral care in a hospital setting, you, you care for one person or one family at a time. When you do pastoral care in the pulpit, you offer it to the whole community at once. Uh, the same thing with administration. You cast a vision for the church and ecclesiological theology for the whole church at one time. Um, all those kinds of things. You do teaching all at once. So for those of us who are called to preaching ministry, uh, along with other forms of our work, it is the moment when I think that we have the biggest chance to really communicate something of significance in a world of a lot of noise. How do we how do we pause for a moment and listen? And and I really do still think there's something to Paul's quote that faith comes by hearing, and and someone then must speak. Well, maybe I'm too much of a snarky jerk, but oftentimes I respond, well, I spend most of my week preparing a sermon by downloading from Joel Osteen's website and changing out <laughs> Lakewood Church for Mosaic Church of Clayton. Um, you know, as, as you think around uh, preaching, um, preaching done well, what does that look and sound like? I'm not sure it sounds the same or looks the same for each person or each worship culture. What what a good sermon would be in a small rural setting versus a large urban setting or uh, a white setting versus an African-American or Hispanic church or a male preaching versus a female preaching, preaching, all those can, can come up with different sounds. But, I, but if I were looking for common denominators, um, for me, good preaching involves the, the, the preacher's personhood coming to bear. So everyone has a unique voice, and that plays a role. But it is that unique perspective combined with ancient traditions that the church has passed down to us in Scripture, uh, in some traditions that hold a higher to church teaching over the years, things like that. So it is both contemporary and ancient at the same time in conversation with one another. It is real. Um, it, good preaching doesn't use what a friend of mine likes to call cookie jar kinds of illustrations where you're talking about the depths of sin and we're all trapped in sin and then you use a an example of a three-year-old getting a cookie when he or she knew they weren't supposed to. Uh, you find instead stories that really we really gravitate towards. They're not hallmarky kinds of stories. They're the real-life, painful and joyful kinds of images that we can all say, "Yeah, that's my life." Um, and that's my experience of God, or I want that to be my experience of God and the world. Um, so it, it draws us to something deeper than we are. I think preachers, to be good preachers, have to really wade on from the shallow end of the pool to where they're swimming in the deep end of the pool of life. And um, too often, I, I think we don't get in deep enough into the human condition in our preaching. But when you, when you really feel like, when you're sitting in the pew, you really feel like you've been named. And you've been named before God and before the church in a way 
that might be convicting and also empowering at the same time. Those are the kinds of sermons that I think make a difference in, in the life of individuals and of the congregation as a whole. And the challenge is that every tradition looks different, um, whether Methodist or the many different forms of being Baptist or Anglican or Episcopalian. It, I've discovered that that the traditions all look so different. Um, and then even within that tradition, as you said, the, the individual um, shapes that narrative um, in such a unique way that, you know, my theology of, of preaching, it's, it's somewhat difficult to pin down you know, in just a few words, because um, we have such a beautiful diversity within the kingdom of expressing uh, the words of scripture and what that looks like in real life. Well, I say I agree. I mean, just just think of the difference between an Episcopalian sermon, where if you go over, you know, I'm using stereotypes, but if you go over 12 minutes, you've gone too long, versus some, say, African-American settings, where if you don't go at least 35, you haven't even begun yet. Um, neither one of those is right or wrong. It's what is fitting for the particular worship culture and what that congregation expects when they come together to hear the word. And um, so, I, I mean, I think one of the biggest theological questions, though, you have to ask across this spectrum is whether you view preaching as the, the preacher talking about God or God speaking through the preacher or what sort of combination of the two it is. Because um, I think those, those evoke very different kinds of theologies of, of uh, sermons and of the preaching ministry in general. So to bring up another um, megachurch pastor from Texas, as if y'all don't have enough out there. Um, <laughs> we try to collect them all here. We do. <laughs> Everything's bigger in Texas. Everything, everything. Uh, Robert Jeffries, pastor of... First Baptist Dallas uh, said something recently in, a, in an interview, and I, I have to believe he said this tongue-in-cheek. He says, if I started preaching politics from the pulpit, our church would empty overnight. That's not why people come to church. They want to hear the word of God being proclaimed, not the word of Robert Jeffries. You know, <laughs> uh, I know, I, that was exactly my response when I heard it. I was like, okay, did he laugh after this? Uh, you know, what, what is it? You know, because at the end of the day, uh, Robert Jeffries is associated with um, preaching politics from the pulpit. Um, Pew Research Center recently uh, released a study that found that 57% of Protestants um, say they want the church to express views of social or political matters, but only 29% said they want to see a candidate directly endorsed by the church. And how this was broken down was uh, white evangelicals, 57%, and black Protestants, 67%, were the ones that led the charge. Let's talk about politics of preaching. Let's do. I um, well, certainly Jeffries is, is quite political. Um, whether in the pulpit, maybe he thinks he's not being as much, but he certainly is publicly, and that affects what you hear from him. Then, if you attend his church in the pulpit and then listen to him in the pulpit, I, I think. Well, I. I, I I think there are types of politics that belong in the pul pulpit and types that don't. Uh, personally, I believe the church is called to the act of transforming the world to accord with God's will for the world. I don't assume that everyone else preaching agrees with me what, in their understanding of God's will, and that, that's where we get awfully messy. But I believe that we are called as preachers then to help cast that vision as best we can learn it from Scripture and other sources, to cast the vision of what God's reign looks like eschatologically so that we can live toward it when we step into the pulpit, uh, when we step out into the world from the church. So um, – I, I, th I agree. I think people really want to hear the pulpit addressing the things they hear about on CNN or Fox or MSNBC. What, the, what I'm not sure they want or need is for us telling them exactly how to think and act. Instead, they want to hear sermons 
that bring theology and scripture into the conversation in a ways that can inform them and help them make decisions and take actions on their own. For me, I think that um, that that a preacher doesn't need to be a Republican or a Democrat or an independent to do this. It's not about preaching partisan politics. It's about preaching politics of of God, if you will. Uh, the ancient Greek word polis for the city implies that politics in its best sense just means striving for what's good for for the common humanity of us. And, and that's where I think politics plays a role. And frankly, there's no preacher out there who doesn't preach politics in some way or another. Um, in fact, it, deciding not to speak on political issues is a political statement in and of itself. To a certain extent, I, I agree with you and um, that people, what people want to hear. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, there's really three categories of people and maybe more, it's, it's more or less two categories. You know, there are those that are uh, in the middle that want, as you were just speaking, that want to um, be informed theologically um, educated theologically so they can make theological decisions around um, society, around politics, um, around business and commerce. But then I think the other category of the group is, I think a lot of people and a lot more than maybe we care to admit, whether on the right or left politically, want to be fed from the pulpit uh, exactly what they believe in their heart and mind when it comes to politics. And, and I guess the question is, how do, we, how do we navigate that? How do we navigate the extremes of both ends? And then how do we unite people together in such a way where we don't all of a sudden create churches um, that the pulpit is for one group or the other instead of, of both? Well, that's a great question. And I, 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 I think you're right. I think all of us love to hear sermons and other kinds of communication that confirm what we already think and we believe. I mean, we just, that makes us feel like we're in the right. I mean, that's why progressives watch MSNBC and conservatives watch Fox. You know, we go to the sources we agree with. And frankly, I think people attend churches that, that are of the ilk that they agree with generally. That said, the church and specifically the pulpit has always been about the task of conversion. If we don't change people's minds and hearts when we preach, then why do we stand up there at all? And if we as preachers aren't open to changing, then why do we study scripture and prepare sermons ahead of time at all? So we always need to be find ways to be open-minded. And so I think that um, in truth, a lot of churches have a lot of people out there who have those red Make America Great Again hats in their closets or at home somewhere or maybe, you know, in, in their car out in the church parking lot. And there's a lot of people there who have Hillary stickers on their bumpers as well. And they're sitting in the same pews. And the question is, are they even able to have a conversation about these kinds of things? And I think the church... I mean, it's, it's odd to think this, but I really believe that part of the way the church needs to be prophetic these days is to just model civility in a day where that seems to be lost in most political conversations. So how do we model a way that we share a devotion to God and to Jesus as Christ, and out of that, we have different political leanings, and yet we find a way to worship and pray together. Now, I don't mean that we ignore those. I mean, we're willing to be open to hearing from the other and finding ways to come together. And, and all of us maybe change our mind on this or that, even if we still stay in our basic orientation. For me, um, you mentioned the, the book Preaching the Era of Trump. I, I, I I'm not, I would never write a book that was about preaching against Republicans or something like that. For, for me, the issue was more some of the kinds of rhetoric that showed up during the campaign that was over against other groups of people, uh, people of color, women, um, immigrants, et cetera. 
And for me, part of what the church is to do is to protect those who are vulnerable in society, the widows, the orphans, the sojourner in our land. And we've got to figure out analogies of that biblical language to our contemporary world. And it seems to me that across the theological and political spectrums, we ought to share those commitments, even if we disagree about how we do those. So if we can find a common starting point for caring for the other in the name of God, then we might be able to get a little further than we're getting anywhere else in conversation. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to helping you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Brenda Heifer. She came to Campbell Divinity School from Texas following her call. That call led her to be the minister to children and families at First Baptist Church of Southern Pines. While earning a Master of Divinity at Campbell, she embraced her call to preach and was awarded the Addie Davis Award for Excellence in Preaching in 2015 by the Baptist Women in Ministry. Following God's call has led Brenda to be a Peace Corps volunteer in Lesotho, Africa, whether she is ministering to children in North Carolina, preaching the good news to congregations, or teaching children English in Africa, she is part of God's reconciling act in this world. Now that's Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. How might Campbell help you discover or sharpen your call? Campbell University Divinity School offers Master of Divinity, Master of Arts and Christian Ministry, and a Doctoral of Ministry program in flexible formats that allow students to have a rich face-to-face classroom experience even while working and commuting to Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. For more information on our master's or doctoral level programs, visit divinity.campbell.edu. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I think, I wonder if a part of this is um, you know, the fact that um, another study of Public Religion Research Institute uh, came up this past fall and found that uh, white Christian population in America has dropped below 50%. And I wonder so much of the hard rhetoric of the what I might label self-righteous rhetoric uh, coming from that particular group is maybe a sense of, of loss, a loss of power, a loss of control of what they viewed of, of being able to, uh, to dictate the narrative of, of culture and they're losing that. And there's a lot of fear in that. Um, and so I think, I think that has a lot to do with uh, some of the tones that we're hearing out of the white evangelical church. Um, but I'm also struck by, you know, when it comes to, politics and faith and politics in the pulpit or politics and writing. Um, April 9th will make 73 years since Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was um, taken from this world. And we know his story, of course, but one of his most powerful quotes, he says, fear is in the boat in Germany and our lives and in our naves of our church, naked fear of an hour from now or tomorrow or the day after that, That is the final triumph of fear over us, that we are afraid to run away from it and just let it enslave us. Fear has conquered us. So as as you think around this theology of of preaching, this theology of politics and preaching, how do we we move past the fear um, that sometimes pastors face when it comes to navigating these topics or things we see, uh, injustices we see within our culture? Well, I, I, first of all, I agree completely with you that um, I think fear of loss of being the center is a big role of this. Um, and But actually, I also see, when I think back to the last presidential election, the primaries leading up to it, that there's a lot of anger that comes from both ends of the political spectrum. I, I saw anger driving the su- supporters of Bernie Sanders in similar ways that we had anger driving some of the supporters of Trump. Um, and so, so there's this interesting similarity of dynamic across the spectrum. And yes, I, I think we are moving more and more and more into a pluralistic culture where um, being white is no longer the center um, or won't be being male is no longer the center and being christian is no longer the center and 
somebody I, I can't remember the essay I read that I thought was a great essay that said Trump never could have been elected if Obama hadn't been elected. In that um, we probably would have swung from Democrat to Republican like we've been prone to do, but it would have been a more traditional Republican had a white male Democrat held the office. But but the election of Trump, uh, excuse me, the election of Obama showed sort of that losing of the white center. Where um, so that the moment Trump was elected. Um, within days, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center had counted a, a significant increase in hate speech and hate crimes being recorded, hate violence. So graffiti, yelling at women, et cetera. In the last year that Trump's been in office, um, hate groups have risen by 4%. For the first time, the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented two groups specifically focused on hatred towards women. So misogynist, and um, most are white supremacist groups rising in different ways, but also a rise in black nationalist groups. So we're becoming more and more and more and more divided and hate-filled, and, and I suspect fear is at the bottom of a lot of it, as you've named. And so, yeah, so how do we, um, in the pulpit, counter this kind of fear? And one of the things I... I write about a lot is that one sermon doesn't do that much. I mean, you know, young preachers, we come into the pulpit the first time, we think, wow, I'm, you know, going to do everything with this sermon. Well, when once you've served in the church a while, you really realize it's the cumulative force of preaching with people over the years that um, helps change minds and hearts and congregations. And so I, I think one of the things we have to do is constantly reinforce that our confidence, our trust, our foundation is not in our status as peoples in the world, but it's in being claimed by God. And if we are God's people, then we can let go of some of that fear of having to be at the center of the universe in order to find meaning in our own lives. So sharing power becomes slowly seen as a positive thing um, instead of just as an ev almost inevitable thing that we need to fight against. Uh, we want everyone, we should want everyone lifted up closer to God's realm uh, with equality. But the problem is, um, I think for a lot of people, helping someone else up the ladder implies I'm coming down the ladder. And that's because we rank ourselves in relation to other people when we need to relate rank ourselves in relation to our status before the divine. Van Jones of CNN um, labeled uh, the 2016 election as a white lash. And it's, it's true. I mean, we saw 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, but then, you know, uh, from our home state uh, of Alabama, 80% of white evangelicals voted for for Robert Moore and the Senate race. Um, so, so turning to this book, uh, Preaching in the Era of Trump, um, by the way, as I was uh, reviewing it and reading it over the last couple of months, you know, I, I, I found that I turned the cover face down just because, you know, your the cover is so attractive and it, it's immediate, you know, we associate a red hat now with Make, a, Make America Great. <laughs> And so the first thing I noticed about the book, first of all, absolutely uh, brilliantly lit, uh, written. It's very kingdom-centered. Um, I noticed that it's uh, 177 pages. So I, I suppose that's because you're going to release uh, four volumes, one for each year of Trump's presidency. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I don't think I will. I, I really don't want to be known as the homiletician who you just, you know, um, stalked Donald Trump. Um, I'll be honest with you. So, so the way the book was written was it was written between the moment he was elected and the week he was inaugurated. So it's the fastest book I've ever written. And um, I wrote it because I did not want to get into his presidency and then be chasing everything, every tweet he sent out, every decision he made, et cetera. And, um, and I also wanted it out as quickly as possible so that preachers could have it to use. And Chalice Press did a phenomenal job of getting it out, um, the digital version, I think in late 
uh, March of that year, uh, of last year. So um, it's been out just about a year now. And um, I had really hoped the book would basically have a short run. And these issues, I, I hoped that either Trump would leave office or the office would make the man. And that as he felt the weight of the presidential responsibilities and all, some of this other stuff would go away. It, I, you know, I, in the first chapter that's called um, Confessing Our Shock and Awe, I named that when Trump came down that escalator in Trump Tower and announced that he was going to run for office and called Mexican rapists and uh, drug dealers and all this kind of stuff, I, I didn't take him seriously. I thought he's in this for publicity. He doesn't believe what he's saying. He'll do anything to grab a headline and get attention, up his ratings, et cetera. And I should have taken him seriously a lot sooner than I did. And, and maybe if others had the same kind of experience. And I, I think now that we're a year into his presidency, we see he really did believe a lot of what he said. It, it wasn't just um, trying to, to grab his 15 minutes of fame. It was trying to um, provoke an agenda that I find very problematic. So my takeaway from what you just said is um, because you didn't take it seriously, we can blame you for all of this. <laughs> well, you can at least blame me in part. You know, note what you said that if you, you know, wrote a book in response to everything uh, that's said on Twitter or over conferences or, you know, media presses that uh, you would be, uh, that's that's called a blog. That's not called a book. You'd be writing something on such a consistent basis. Well, you know, as I was reading through the book, I think a couple of pieces that struck struck me, and I don't want to get too much into it, mainly because I want people to go and buy this book. Um, is uh, you really raised a call for for pastors to consider um, how they approach the pulpit? Um, you know, obviously, um, you, as you said, you you're not looking for a one off sermon. Um, I'm often reminded that um, Jesus journeyed with the disciples for three years, and at the end of the three years, they still didn't get it. You know, so uh, and and how many times in my life have have I had mentors uh, work with me in a process, and I'm sure they wanted to beat their head against the wall that I still didn't get. It. And oftentimes, I guess pastors can feel that way, and probably um, lay leaders can feel that way about their pastors as well. That we we journey so long, um, so hard together that sometimes. We expect one speech, one Bible study, one um, vespers to to somehow change uh, people's hearts and minds. And I think, in many regards, the Spirit of God is at work in all those things. But okay, zeroing in on some of the things you said, um, one of the thing, first things that struck me was that you were calling people not to just speak out against um, Trump and Trump supporters, but speak to Trump supporters. And you wrote this, if we commit ourselves to preaching the gospel's radical ethic concerning peace, justice, and love for all, we're going to have to speak about Trump and his supporters, as well as speak to Trump supporters. Yeah, I, I really, I mean, the statistics you showed about um, who voted for Trump and who voted for Roy Moore show that in our churches, and certainly in my denomination, uh, United Methodist Church, there are plenty of people who are on Trump's side. And it doesn't bother me at all that they are Republican and I'm Democrat, that kind of thing, that they view the world differently than me and they want to get at some of the goals. Of it. it does bother me, though, when they hear racist language coming out of him and um, some of those surrounding him, and they're just fine with it. As Christians, that that bothers me greatly. So, how do we help all of us be more sensitive to that? And so, one of the things that I try to do is um, not not put the focus entirely on Trump. That's why it's preaching. It's not preaching against Trump. It's preaching the era of Trump when um, hate language and um, expressions of violence towards others, et cetera, is on a rise. How do we speak against all of that? And so one of the things, you know, I talk about is just how do you normalize 
speech that's more civil and speech that's more inclusive of others. So if I'm a white preacher and I mention um, a married couple in a sermon illustration and we're primarily a white church, everybody just imagines that the couple is white. It's our context. So how do I find language in a sermon that evokes imagery from people of other ethnic backgrounds so that that just normalizes our thought of the value of the whole of humanity and helps sort of reduce our um, isolationism in our own race and ethnic community, et cetera? So how do we how do we just sort of as as Trump has normalized speech on, that, that I find abhorrent? in other ways, how do we normalize speech that draws us together as God's people? And I, I think that's a huge thing. So so I, I think you're right. A lot of preachers think, okay, once a year I've preached on race, or on Mother's Day I've preached on, you know, women as lifted up, or something like that. So I've done my duty. Well, that doesn't do it, really. So how do we week after week after week, when we're preaching on a whole range of other topics, bring in images, et cetera, that does more than one thing. Bring these images that lift up women as business leaders, as something not just to be objectified. How do we bring in images that show friendships between gay and straight people as something normal? How do we bring in images that show um, you know, um, all different kinds of lifestyles that we find fine, um, but just aren't what we regularly experience. So how do we expand our experience in the pulpit in ways that has profound political implications without always sounding political? And I think that's a big part of the preaching task uh, in this era. All right, we've got to pause and tell you about one more of this episode's presenting sponsors, Candler School of Theology at Emory University. For more than a century, Candler has prepared real people to make a real difference in the real world. Here, students develop their God-given gifts to become Christian leaders who put faith and love into action. Now offering 16 degrees, including a Master of Divinity with a Certificate in Baptist Studies, an online hybrid Doctorate of Ministry, and two-year Master of Religious Leadership. At Candler, you'll join a diverse community where Baptists make up 10% of the faculty and represent the second largest denomination among students. Benefit from the resources of a top 25 university and build relationships with highly regarded faculty thanks to our low 7 to 1 student-faculty ratio. Discover more at apply.candler.emory.edu. I think it's a sign of a maturity of a minister to uh, be able to be the example of Christ, to show self-control, um, to speak uh, about injustices, but do it in such a way that um, is as a beacon of hope and peace and light in this world. And I think one of the things that you wrote that that really struck a chord with me around that same theme is a, is a call for us to stop seeing each other as us and them. And you wrote, if the church and society has been mistaken in both its attempts to missionize and colonize the world to bring all into, quote, us, and to reduce any sense of, quote, them, with a laissez-faire approach to inclusion in the community, what is better is a healthier approach to human need to divide the world into us and them. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, actually, some of this grows out of my um, response to sort of mainline progressive Protestantism that wants to reduce any us and them to just us. Everybody is accepted. Well, no, no. In the church, we do have standards of membership, et cetera, uh, baptism. Um, some churches are creedal, et cetera. Us and them is not – having an us and them is not the problem. Ranking, hierarchically speaking, us and them is the problem. So I can view someone else as part of them um, without having to mean by that they are less than me. And that's where I think we need to get so that we recognize there are diverse groups in um, our society. There are diverse religions, for example. Um, and I can say with, with my full heart that Christianity is the only way for me without having to say, and therefore that Muslim over there is a terrible person. I can say I just don't agree with that person, but but 
but that person's a fine human being trying to be faithful in her or his own way, trying to reach up to God, just as I'm trying to reach up to God, trying to serve country, just as I'm trying to serve country. So I think it's important for us to not try and just idealistically get rid of all us and them, so there's just us, but to recognize that them um, as a category doesn't have to divide us from them just much as it distinguishes that there are categories of where we fit in, groups, etc., without us saying, and we are better than them. So the division classically in um, the U.S. around race, white and black, has always been white is better, black is less. And that has harmed people for hundreds and hundreds of years. We don't have to say, okay, all churches have to be mixed race, um, which is sort of what we used to think that, uh, you know, Martin Luther King's great line that uh, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week is still problematic in many ways. It still very speaks truth. But we've also recognized that um, when we tried to integrate communities, it was usually trying to bring in minorities to worship the way that the majority worship. And, and that's not, that's not a, a way towards equality at all. Um, groups need different kinds of identities to form and, and to be healthy, but at the same time, we need to find ways to come together for common causes. Um, and, and value one another. So I think it's a hard line to figure out where we can draw lines between us and them. I, I, I don't want the Klan meeting in my church the way I might have an AA group meet there on Tuesday night. I'm going to draw a line between us and them. But there are other lines where I'm going to say, okay, there's you and there's us, and how can we work together without trying to diminish your unique identity? I think um, kind of the last aspect that really stuck out to me, and again, go go buy this book um, for our listeners. Um, is it was a call to to say, hey, look, this this isn't just the work of of pulpiteers. This is the work of the church. And you wrote the eschatological eschatological church, properly defined, can't and won't be satisfied to conform to the world but will be transformed by the renewing of our minds to discern and do God's will in striving to transform the world. So how does the church uh, take our, our daily uh, pulpits and maybe step down from the pulpit and step into this world um, to, to be uh, the transformational community it's called to be? It's, it's work that will never end. And it's work that, um, we easily tire off, but shouldn't. I, I think we must get out there and try and shape the conversation in ways that it's not being done otherwise. I, I really do think that so much of, I mean, just take 24-hour news um, stations, regardless of what's your favorite one, and they put up panels where people yell at each other. I, I don't know where we get with that. I don't think anyone's persuaded by it other than, as you said, we're just confirmed where we are. Somehow, in the name of Jesus Christ, we can go forward and shape conversations with people we disagree with, with people we love and agree with, and, and somehow bring it all into a more fruitful action. Congress is always going to have divisions and voting blocks and stuff, and that's fine. That's just the way things work. But somehow we have lost um, a sense of what is the common good in our culture, I think. The arguments are about what's good for this group or that. I mean, take what's going on right now with conversation about gun laws in relation to the numerous mass shootings we've had. I, I, and, and hear me as saying, I don't know what the answer is to this problem. Um, so, but, but I don't think we're even able to have a real conversation about it because people have decided on one side, you got to get rid of the guns or on the other side, you've got to protect the second amendment. You can't even let the CDC study it. Um, so we have set laws against them. The NRA is shaping the conversation in such a strong way. 
Uh, we've got people hacking um, Facebook and attacking the kids who are speaking up from Florida. I mean, it seems to me the church could be a place where we go, okay, we're going to put the yelling aside for now, and we're going to talk about this as people of faith. Where where do we see God leading us as Americans who love the Bill of Rights and Americans who also love our children, Americans who hate violence, what are we going to do? And just start a different kind of conversation out in the world that might somehow get people talking to one another, listening to one another, instead of always just shouting at one another. Easier said than done, I know. But. <laughs> Well, uh, to our listeners, um, go and purchase Preaching in the Area of Trump wherever books Please. are sold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can also follow Wes's daily blog in response to Trump's tweets and quotes. Where can we find that? <laughs> well, um, it's going to be hard to find it daily. I just I, I don't have as much time to tweet as Trump does, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wesley Allen Jr., Wes. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation. Oh, thank you for inviting me for the conversation. I appreciate it very much. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctorate of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for the 2018 Pastor School, May 28th through the 30th, in partnership with Pittman Center of Congregational Enrichment. This year's guest speaker topics will focus on leadership and perilous times. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-web.edu backslash divinity. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 